podcast made by, for, and about the Oscars. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. All right, hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run. Uh, one of the shows... I, I'm I'm going to keep the introduction and, you know, senile ramblings brief because I really want to get to the conversation today. My guest today runs what might be my favorite channel on YouTube. He's the man behind the wonderful Pop Goes the 60s channel, which has some of the best Beatles commentary around and also great o- overviews of other bands like the Yardbirds, the Association and more. Plus, the artwork he does for his channel is fucking awesome. Matt Williamson, at long last, welcome to Fans on the Run. Thank you, Ethan. Very happy to be here. Very flattered to get your call. Well, I'm I'm very flattered that you answered my call. Well, I like graphics, and you obviously are a graphic designer, and some of what pulled me into your podcast were the album covers, the parodies you would do, because I love parody, and you did some real fun ones with your guests. I mean, sometimes I feel like I started the show just to do that, and the, the audio components just kind of like, oh, I guess I have to do that too. <laughs> So um, something I've been doing as of late as a bit of a Beatle palette cleanser, um, talking about other music. What was the last album you listened to? I just listened to The Rascals' Peaceful World. So I just finished shooting my Rascals series last night. And normally when I shoot, uh, when I'm working on a band, I'll have to go back and listen to some of the albums that I wasn't as familiar with. And what was interesting, this, this is a, their last, second last album, double album, and I had never honestly listened to it well before, and I really liked it. It's super mellow. I thought it was going to suck, but it didn't. And what year was it? Like 71. 60, 71. Oh, yeah. Wow. And two members had left the band by this point, and it's a completely mellow, like blissed out album. And they've got a one track, the title track is 21 minutes long. And you would think, God, that's the height of self-indulgence. But it's actually listenable. I'm like, oh my the, god. The Rascals. The Rascals. Yes. A 21 minute song. Yeah. Eat your heart out, Pink Floyd. <laughs> Who needs Adam Hart Mother when you can have Peaceful World? Rascal. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so so how have you been as of late? Well, I've been good. I've been busy as usual. You know, the summertime here is uh, trying to fit as much as I can in the summer. And uh, I've got a vacation coming up here, so I've been just trying to sneak videos in where I can, and uh, my list is very long. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually going on a vacation, too, relatively soon. And I, I'll, I could say this publicly, by the time uh, the episode goes out, I'll be back. Um, going to hang out with, uh, with Tom Hunyadi and Andy Nichols of uh, Two Legs in Arizona. Oh, very good. I'm... I'm, I'm my wallet's already crying for mercy because mm-hmm. they're going to drag me to like 20 or 30 record stores. <laughs> Bring your wallet with you. Oh, I plan on it. Mm-hmm. Let's well, say hello for me. I watch, I watch their podcast occasionally. I'll bring my wallet. Not sure it'll come back, <laughs> but so I, I think I'll just, uh, you know, jump right in with the Beatles stuff because I want to talk about other bands than the Beatles yeah, sure. with you. Mm-hmm. which is weird for a Beatles podcast, but I don't give a fuck. Well, it's all connected. It's all connected. It's all part of the soup. Mm-hmm. How did you first discover the Beatles? Well, I was a, a record spinner at a very young age, and I loved. I started playing records when I was two. And by the time I was three, we moved to the house that I grew up in. And my next-door neighbor, Dan, he had seven older brothers and sisters. So all the records he had and I had was all 60s stuff. So um, one of the things that, uh, this is before I could read, obviously. So it was a couple of years before I, I realized that, hey, these songs with this apple on the label, I really like. So the, there were three singles that Dan had. It was Come Together Something, Hey Jude Revolution, and then the third on VJ was Do You Want to Know a Secret and Thank You Girl. And those three 45s were, up, we had about 25. It was like Steppenwolf and Rolling Stones and all kinds of stuff. But those three really stood out. So by the time I was like six, I suppose I could read it. And I, that's why, how I found out who they were. 
I, I was going to ask uh, if if you can remember what were some of those other forty fives? Yeah, that I you had, remember sure. spinning. I had Temptation Eyes by the Grassroots, uh, White Room by Cream, but I listened to the B side more. That was Those Are the Days. Uh, let's see what else. Simon and Garfunkel, Sounds of Silence. I had bought my first forty five. I bought used was uh, Last Train to Clarksville for ten cents. So those what were, yeah, those were, and then with, with the picture sleeve, I still got with it. With the picture yeah, sleeve. still got it. So those were some of the, the other one was, uh, I did a video on this guy called Lou Courtney, an R&B guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a song called Hey Joyce, kick ass, kind of proto-funk song. So I had a pretty good, you know, smattering of different type of artists, you know, black and white artists, British Invasion, you know, some of the goofier stuff like, uh, uh, Ding Dong, which is dead, and things like that. So, most did, did you have they're coming to take me away? Haha, I did not have that one. Oh, missed out. <laughs> the association was another one, so I had a couple of their 45s as well. See, uh, the association's a band I've been I've been trying to get into as of late. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I picked up a, an album of theirs not too long ago. The what's, what's, what's the psychedelic one from 67 called? Inside Out. No, it, it's got a weird, colorful cover. Oh, that's Birthday. Birthday, that's mm-hmm. the one. Good album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their albums are all consistently good. I mean, there's not a masterpiece among them, really, but all very good. And a great band. I love them. So, so back to those, those Beatle people. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it go from there, from knowing that you like the Apple and then you're able to read the mm-hmm. label? What next? Yeah, I, I've got a pretty good timeline on this because all my friend Dan, all we'd listen to were singles. And and one other thing I'll mention is that I also love the labels. I mean, I'm a, my, I'm a graphic designer by trade, and I've always been interested in design. So record labels and the size of the 45 are always just pleasing to me. So that's another way I would choose records before I could read because I felt like the label. Uh, oh, oh, you're you're giving me such a good excuse to dive into this. Okay, if if what are your top five record labels design wise? Wow. Um, well, I love uh, obviously my favorite is the Apple label. That to me is the best label of all time. Oh boy, uh, you caught me off guard on that one. I like a lot of the early '60s style more so than the late '60s. I'm trying to think of a perfect one here got a pile behind me i could just go through and probably find a half a dozen of them but obviously uh rca you know the capital swirl that's kind of cool because i used to make me dizzy when i would watch it um <laughs> can't think of any others right off the bat how about yourself uh the the one because a bunch of my dork friends and i have conversations like this all the time mm-hmm. so i already know what my top five are it's like I've always loved the British Fontana label. Oh yeah, that's a good one. The light blue. Yeah, I love any of those uh, like pre seventy two Island labels. Okay. Yeah, I've got one for you. It's the uh, Monument label. Uh, Roy Orbison recorded on Monument, <laughs> and one of those early forty fives I had was Pretty Woman. And I think my dad stepped on it, and broke it, or something. And then I had, and that was an original pressing from like sixty four. So he went to the store and got me a new one. I'm like, this is on a different label. It was, a, it was an updated monument label from like early 70s. I was so disappointed, even though I got the same damn song. <laughs> well, I'd be disappointed too if uh, <laughs> like I had uh, time is on my side. Mm-hmm, and then sure. you know, someone breaks that and then comes back to the you know, house. And it's like that stupid late 70s London label. Oh, yeah. The the early the clouds and the early trees. London labels were really sharp looking. Oh, those are it's a beauty. They, uh, to me though, they still can't hold the candle to the Decca labels. Oh, you like the Decca? Okay. I, I've, I know you're a Who fan. I am a Who fan. So that kind of plays into that Decca. Label. I mean, British Decca. Oh, okay. Like I am a, I'm a sucker for those bespoke British labels. Okay. Like the the ultimate way to make me salivate is like show me a picture of one of those EMI labels from the sixties. Okay, yeah. For all of you out there who want to make me salivate, Jesus Christ, I'm not <laughs> good at thinking before I speak. Well, I'll tell you the um, 
I was salivating over singles up until I was nine. And my, again, my friend Dan, he was the youngest of eight. His older sister bought him, we were in fourth grade, three Beatle albums. So we immediately never played 45s again, played albums. The first three albums he got, it was Magical Mystery Tour, Let It Be, and The British Rubber Soul. I don't know where she got an import, but she had, that's what I grew up with, The British Rubber Soul. So those three, we started listening to them, like, oh my God. And then we, we went in his closet, you know, they had a crate of other albums. We pulled out other Beatles albums, like Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road, Hard Day's Night. And then Sue bought Dan three more albums. She bought him Revolver, The White Album, and maybe it was just those two. So we had almost the whole collection, like, right away. So it was really kind of cool. I mean, I, I grew up the generation after the Beatles, so I didn't, I didn't have the luxury of hearing those so songs as they came out, but I did have the luxury of getting everything at once. Mm -hmm. It's like, it, 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 well, I was going to say something, and then I thought to myself, no, I, I'd just be slightly rephrasing what you said. So, <laughs> Well, I, when, when I, once I heard I Am the Walrus, I'm like, that changed everything. And uh, that's why I got into, uh, I, I really like psychedelic music, and um, it's a lot due to the Beatles' work in that, that era. Here's a question that'll probably take up the next uh, two hours. No, just kidding. Uh, British psych or American psych? Ooh, never been asked that. I, I, I think I like both. I mean, as I always talk about... Uh, there's quite a difference between the two. Generally speaking, the British stuff has a more blues base to it and the American has more folk base. So you get an acoustic versus a grungier British sound. And um, I think that the American psychedelic stuff, they take it a little further instrumentally than they, the Brits do. Uh, but I, I love both equally. I mean... I, I think I'm biased because I'm asking this and I, I've always been a sucker for like the British pop psych because it, they may not, it may not be as like instrumentally lush as the American stuff, but I think they make up for it in terms of production. Yeah. The you, British would yes. throw everything at the wall. A couple of really tape good phasing. Yeah. A couple of really good, like Shell Tommy is a great producer from that era, which is, I'd like to do a video just on him. Is his band's the work he did is really really stands out. Oh come on the the Kinks the Who the Creation yeah the Pentangle even the Pentangle even. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at, after the the three Beatle albums, then you find the ones in the crate, and then you get the three more. Mm -hmm. Where does it go from there? Well, so that was uh, 77, 78, So I was a kid. So. Those we listened to for about four or five years, I guess. Three or four years. And then by the time I was 13, I was collecting. So that's when I started buying all my own stuff. And then when I got my driver's license, well, I just went to every record store in, in, in town here. And in those days, you know, even the department stores had record departments. You know, so you could get, you could get them all over the place. And, um, and I was listening to a lot of radio. I mean, still, I was, you heard all, all the top 40 radio of the early 80s. I listened to a lot. And my, I had older cousins. So they were the ones introducing me to Bowie, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Roxy Music, all that 70s stuff, Elton John. And they were listening to the cool 70s stuff. Meanwhile, growing up in the 70s, I heard all the AM radio stuff like, you know, Disco Duck and the Bee Gees and the Disco and all that stuff. So... <clears throat> I had, I had a pretty good amount coming at me from all different directions. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask a bit of a broad question here. It's, it's the one people I think dread the most. Uh, what do the Beatles mean to you? Well, I, they've always meant, um, what do they mean to me? Well, I, I guess they, they, what they bring to me, I mean, it's, it's like a joyful feeling. It's not just their music. But it's the whole of them together, the, the whole catalog, and even how they went through all the changes, the different appearances and clothing, of which they were pretty much leading pop culture in all those different areas. There's just something about it that um, is just so fun and joyous, and just, 
they're endlessly interesting to me. Um, uh, I, I was thinking about something the other day. I, it seems that a lot of Beatles fans think that, uh, well, not a lot, but a good chunk, um, that the '60s music scene kind of started and ended with the Beatles. Where Where do you think they kind of fit in in comparison with their contemporaries? Well, I would say for sure they started it because um, before the Beatles, you had <clears throat> rock and roll was only you know about six, seven, eight years old. So in 1962, when Love Me Do came out, one of the things that I never realized was how new that sound was and how gritty and how uh, just raw it was because everything was fairly polished before that. When Elvis went to the, the army, you had this kind of Hollywood byproduct was coming out in America of just, you know, Runaway and these Del Shannon songs. Some of it's very good, but extremely polished and saccharine. The Beatles changed all that, that everybody followed. And when the Beatles ended, they had left enough where everybody just kind of took the ball and ran with it in the 70s. Because I think the Beatles pretty much had, they had run their course. You know, they had their time, and they were pretty much done, I think. By they could have gone maybe I, I contend they could have gone another twelve months being on the cutting edge, but then they were done. They never yeah. would have been on the cutting edge, and their their solo work show, bears that out. Because you know seventy one seventy two, it's once once the glam stuff starts, mm-hmm. it's the Beatles would be on the outs. Yeah, and I didn't realize how on the outs the Beatles were in say England or the UK. In the 70s. In the States, they were still pretty popular. I mean, they still were played on the radio. (laughs) Younger generations like myself were listening to them. Older brothers and sisters passed them down to kids like myself. And uh, they never stopped being somewhat popular. But they were, I guess, they seemed like they were old, you know. It was only like six years (laughs) before, you know. I mean, I didn't even find out they broke up until I was probably about eight years old. How'd you handle that news? Well, I, I thought they had, because I, I know they didn't have any new stuff. And you could tell, I mean, you could, some of those dates on some of the albums, so you knew the dates. And I asked uh, a neighbor girl who's older than me, I said, did the Beatles break up? She said, yeah, I think so. And it was probably about 1976. <laughs> you know, it wasn't even known. <laughs> around, you know, around the, the, the neighborhood. Neighborhood, neighborhood kids didn't know. But it, that's just... Um, you know, uh, it was if, if there's one thing forth. you can take away from this show today, it's that the Beatles may have broken up. <laughs> Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. You wouldn't know it watching some no. of these uh, YouTube YouTubers like myself. You know, as popular as ever. Well, speaking of uh, YouTubers like yourself, mm-hmm. um, wh- how do you feel about the current state of of Beatle fandom, so to speak? Well, I just did a video on this, actually, with a couple of guys. Um, Well, the fandom is more interesting to me than any of the new stuff coming out by these old dinosaur rock stars. Because the fandom, the fans take a lot of different approaches, and some get really deep into it, uh, to the point of almost worship. And that's where I, I draw some lines. You know, they're just people, and I admire the music, but... It stops, you know, I don't have to like their personalities. Yeah. I mean, they're just they're just people like you and me, flawed individuals. So, you know, some people take it very far. And uh, it, it really, it doesn't make for very good conversation when you're analyzing, trying to have a some honest analysis of their music or their career or where they fit in in the bigger pantheon. They're a little bit crippled with uh, adulation, I guess is what I would call it. <laughs> And something I've, I've noticed uh, talking with uh, some some fellow Beatle fans, it, it seems like with all this stuff, everyone constantly saying the Beatles are the greatest band of all time. It's the Beatles did everything. Like everything happened because of the Beatles. They they get kind of tunnel vision and they, you know, won't listen to other things. Yeah. It's like, well, why mm-hmm. would I do that? I have the Beatles. Yeah, that's very true, and I know that because I had some tunnel vision myself at one time. And uh, I, although I listened to all '60s music I could get my hands on, uh, the stuff you know in the '80s and '90s when I was a teenager in college and in my 20s, 
I had to kind of reconcile because I couldn't go around saying, well, man, you know, Pearl Jam sucks or Nirvana. This is bullshit because it wasn't. And I knew that it wasn't, but I was, I, I always generally liked older stuff. Like I, I watch old films from the forties and fifties. You know, I liked older music, things like that. I had a really hard time judging stuff in the present day. It's difficult to do. You sometimes need a little time to pass. So what you have to do is, you know, uh, you need some perspective off of what came before. You obviously can't get what's to come because nobody knows. But that's where it gets kind of interesting. Some people, um, you know, not everybody thinks of it that way. And I didn't for a long time, but I, I do now. Well, you, you kind of touched on. Do you think there's a, a kind of a, a St. Beatles mentality at this point? Of the Beatles themselves or the fans, I mean? Or? Uh, the, the Beatles themselves. Um, yeah, there's, there's certain camps. You, you're no longer just on team Beatles. You're on team Paul or team John, or there's even a team Pete best. You know, there's all these, these things that, um, I guess there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes there, when you, when there's a conflict, say, well, like, uh, it was, uh, let's talk about one of these authors here. Um, Philip Norman who stated that John Lennon was three-quarters of the Beatles. Now, that's a ridiculous statement to make if you give an honest listen to their music. And uh, so those are the kind of things that uh, some people have a difficulty talking about and trying to say, hey, what really went on here? Who contributed what? And let's have a look at this. It's not a quick conversation. But so those are the kind of things that uh, I've been discussing discussing on my channel. Uh well, you touched on on Philip Norman, and it's you're you're doing all the legwork for me. It's, oh. I don't even need to segue. <laughs> it's like let let's talk about some Beatle books. Uh, what was what was the first Beatle book you ever read? Well, I bought when I was a kid. There was very few books in my library. There were a couple, and the Beatle ones or any of the rock and roll ones, they had the pictures cut out, so you never could get a, the full story. So I ended up buying Nicholas Schaffner's book. I must have been about 13. So about in those, you know, I'm going to the mall, going to the bookstores. That's, that book was still in print. In fact, there was an, up, uh, uh, an updated version when Lennon got killed. I bought that one in the Beatles Illustrated Record by Roy Carr and Tony Tyler, I believe, I think, authors. I'll um, take your word for it. And those books were really great starting points because, and those were written in the 70s. And there was, uh, I can tell you that those were not overly, you know, those were not just adulations of the Beatles' careers. Those are rather critical. So I thought, and, so, and they were great writers, too. And by the way, Philip Norman, for all of his biases, he's a very good writer. Um, so these other two books, Schaffner especially, and uh, Carr and Tyler, rather biting commentary, especially when you get to the solo years. So I grew up listening to the solo years with some of that rhetoric, you know, supporting it, which was not positive. So now, nowadays, most of the, I very rarely hear, you know, people who have, you know, to talk about the Beatles in either podcasts or YouTube. It's, it's usually not, it's mostly pretty flattering of their solo work. And um, I, I, I like a lot of their solo work, but I'm, I'm pretty critical of it. That's, that's why I don't do a solo Beatles podcast. <laughs> I, I couldn't sit here with a straight face and, Say, uh, you know, man, Bad Boy, what a good Ringo album. Yeah, I mean, uh, what's, what's worse, Bad Boy bad boy, or Sometime in New York City? That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> is, is neither an option? Well, it could be a tie, I suppose. I, mean, okay. I, I, I would say one is more embarrassing than the other. But that's oh, a, that may be a topic for... for Maybe They're embarrassing for, for different reasons. <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. I mean, you know, Bad Boy's not great, but it you can't exactly say the name of the first song on Sometime in New York City at this That's very true. juncture. That's very true, not without uh, repercussions. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I certainly don't feel comfortable saying it. There's not a need to say it. No. Maybe at some point in the future there will be, but at this point there's not. No. It's the, the woman is the something of the something. Yeah. 
<laughs> it'll it'll be it'll be interesting to see how they they handle that next year with the with the sometime in New York City super deluxe Uber crate. Is there going to be one? I I think Sean Lennon confirmed it on Instagram. Boy. Someone commented like, "When are you going to do this uh, sometime in New York City?" And he put twenty twenty two. Wow. I don't think it's deserving of anything special. You know, maybe a a nice pressing of some sort, but I, I don't know. I, I just don't think it's uh it's worthy of it. But the yeah, Beatles, the it's, Beatles, it's one are... of those albums that that needs uh, ten colors. <laughs> yeah. How about we get one with Frank Zappa's face plastered on one? <laughs> and the live Frank Z- the scumbag I- side in reverse. <laughs> Frank Zappa draws all over the cover. There you go. Yeah, but. I mean, they're both dead now, so that'd be kind of hard. <laughs> you could probably still fit the pen in the hand if the hand still exists. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it's it's funny. A lot of the solo stuff, it's 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 touchy to talk about some of that stuff. It's funny how some people won't talk about it just because they fear of the, the bullying and the repercussions of seeing something that people don't agree with them on. An honest review is just one person's opinion. And some people can back it up better than others. I mean, if you're bringing in some perspective, you know, on why it's good or why it's bad, and have some criteria. It's really about the criteria you set for yourself. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of people don't do that. Oh, I'm going to be a little self-critical here. It's That's why I feel like I'm, I'm not good whenever I go on other shows to talk about albums. Mm-hmm. It's because, you know, I'm not good with, like the the criteria of what makes it good and bad it's just like i like it yeah what do you like about it ethan I yeah don't know. It sounds good yeah yeah I, I i um i heard you say that on one one of the podcasts once and it is difficult to like for instance take somewhere sometime in new york city um, i've seen people rate that as high as 7.5 out of 10 all right well if rumors is a 10 are you telling me that Sometime New York City is that close to a 10, or to rumors. You know, you can start to say, well, if this one's a 10, I mean, you know, there are certain benchmarks that are albums that are just universally accepted as good. Not too many people are going to say, hey, rumors, that really sucks. It's a bad album. You know, this other album is better. I mean, that doesn't get said. And there are some things that are just universally really good. It doesn't mean they're flawless. You know, we can talk about Bach if you like, but I mean, there are some really fine pieces of music and some really not fine pieces of music. And it's easier to say why things are bad, I think, than, they, than there are reasons to say things are good. Well, I, I, I want to jump a little to the left, I guess. Um, <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Um, Back to the the Beatles contemporaries in the '60s and uh, criticism. Yes. Uh, I, I want to ask you this in particular because I, I think you'd have some interesting thoughts on it. Um, I, I've said on the the show before my favorite Stones album is uh, their Satanic Majesty's oh, yeah. Request. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that record? I like it. Uh, always. So when I bought when I first started buying Stones albums, that's one of the first ones I bought because I knew it was going to be so called psychedelic which when I was a teenager, that's what I wanted. And I loved Ruby Tuesday. Uh, loved, uh, I loved She's a Rainbow. You know, I heard some like Dandelion Bull songs. And I, I wasn't disappointed because I, I, my expectations weren't that high. And I know when that had a 50th anniversary box set, that got some new adulation that hadn't been there before. Some of it over-adulation, some of it worthy of it. You know, it's got some good stuff on it. Do you have a favorite track on that album? Um, I I think of I. Why did I think about that? It's it's in another land. Oh really? That's, yeah. I think that's one of the finest songs the Stones ever really? recorded. Bill Wyman song. It's. I think I'm coming from like a you know Sid Barrett kind of school of thought. Yes, that would be very Sid Barrett. My buddy loves that song. We I I I like the song, but I, I it wasn't one I loved. To me, it was one of those songs that sounded a little bit more like, let's try to make a psychedelic song. And the production styles kind of give it away that they were maybe trying a little too hard on that song. But I'm a Bill Wyman fan, so I always, I'm a little bit biased for any song he, he gets on the Stones album. 
um the the first time i heard it i'm like this is this is really good it's man someone's doing a really good steve marriott impression in the backing vocals <laughs> yes and then i read the thing and it's like oh he and ronnie lane were there that's correct so it's kind of a small faces album kind of yeah not a oh not an album song god mm -hmm. i need to read a dictionary before i do these shows <laughs> See, now, now you're not just listening to the show, you're experiencing it. And uh, you, you can probably realize how much of it is just me. It's just self-doubt. <laughs> I might. Um, so kind of back. Okay, I'll definitely edit out some of this sh shit. Uh, of the Beatles can of the other uh <laughs> there were a lot of good albums put out by bands not named the Beatles in the 60s there were what are your what are some of your favorites well and, and don't don't give me some of the the popular stuff you want it's, some of the obscure okay oh, I want to I definitely okay. want to hear the obscure. I got one for you okay one album I'm really in love with is the soundtrack up the junction by man for man i love that oh. album and it was re i think it was re-released on cd and there's some bonus tracks with it there's multiple versions of the title track that song I i'm surprised um man for man was one of those bands that the soundtrack stuff was really better than what they put on their albums i think they didn't know who they were it's tough you know they're kind of are we jazz are we psychedelic are we blues what are we but that is one I really enjoy listening to. I, I got really excited when you said the Up the Junction soundtrack. Because yeah. I, I have that. Oh, I do love you? It. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I, let's see what else. Um, I like the band The Action. And, the Action. And they have they only had, I don't even know if they had an album release, but they had enough singles and an unreleased album. So that's it. I have two compilations, mm -hmm. and I think that's pretty much everything. Yeah, British Mod Band. So they were kind of up... The Small Faces era, which is another favorite of mine. I uh, love The Small Faces. Um, I love their second album that's called, I think it's just self-titled, but it was it was kind of when they moved to... The, the one on Immediate? No, it's the one before that. They, they moved to Immediate, and I think it was Decca they were on, released this album that they hadn't quite From finished. the beginning. From the beginning, that's it. I like that album. It's got some, it, some it, early psychedelic stuff that's really good. It's got some great tracks on it. I'm, I'm not sure I'd go so far as to call it an album. Well, because it's it's like half a compilation. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. But but <laughs> any album with like that man, that man, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Those are, yeah. those are the two are my favorites on that. And uh, you can tell that those were the psychedelic things to come on the next. Well, the the small faces were were the gateway drug for me into this wonderful black hole, rabbit hole, whatever, some kind of hole into British psych that wasn't popular. Yeah, you know, someone recommended me Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. Yeah, listen to that. I I liked it, and I went on one of those websites that's like if if you like X, you'll like Y, and. You know, told me you might like Odyssey and Oracle by the Zombies. Oh, there's a band I, I totally love. Uh, that album I I got very. In fact, when I was just got my driver's license, I went down to the biggest record store in town, downtown, and there was a double album called Time of the Zombies, and it was one half of it was the full Odyssey and Oracle, and the other half was like the early singles, and then one side was unreleased stuff. So that was like the perfect Zombies album to start with. So I was the British stuff, and this would have been in the late '80s. See, in the '80s, there's, there was a resurgence starting, so I was able to start to collect stuff fairly easily uh, at that time. Uh, the '80s would be a good time, or probably the best time out of any, to get into like the obscure psych because those series, like the, the Great British Psychedelic Trip, uh, the Rubble. Yes, I remember buying a lot of those. Um, in fact. Just to give you an idea of 
the, the time, how things move so quickly. You know, I was ordering, buying albums still off and on. And there was a British, it was not British Psychedelic Trip. I think it was Psychedelic Snarl. Or it was one of the other series. Oh, yes. And there's a guy, are you familiar with Elton John's band? A guy named Caleb Quay. Yes. So Caleb Quay had a single. It's a kick-ass psychedelic single. Both sides are kick-ass. One's called Woman of Distinction. And the other side is Baby, Your Phrasing is Bad. So yeah. one of the albums I had gotten at a record show, and it was maybe the Rubble series or whatever it was. So it took my buddy and I, that would have been in the oh, about 1990 or so. It took us 10 years, and we found Baby, Your Phrasing is Bad, and we ordered the album from England. And that very week, my buddy downloaded it on Napster for free after trying to get it for 10 years. So that's the difference the internet made. For a lot of us collectors, I mean, it's just time warped. So, and in fact, there's another band. Are you familiar with the band Nirvana? Uh, yeah, the sixties band. Like Teen Spirit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the sixties band. Rainbow Chaser. Right. Well, I bought that album for forty five dollars, and I, I and I didn't like it. Simon Simapath. Yes, and I, this was at the time I didn't like it. I, it was just a little too. Well, if you don't like it, you can send it to me. <laughs> well, I, I'll I'll give you the forty five dollars. Well, what's weird is. I had a nephew of mine who got into music. This would have been in the early 2000s, mid-2000s. He mentioned that album to me. I mean, that's a super obscure album. And here's some 16-year-old in 2006 knew about it. And I was just shocked. <laughs> but the internet, you know. <laughs> well, that's the beautiful thing about the internet. It's I wouldn't... People, a lot of, a lot of the older music fans out there a little bit snobbish they always poo poo on streaming mm -hmm. it's without streaming like this new generation wouldn't know about all these great bands like at, at this like snap my fingers i can go onto spotify and spotify can lead me down this rabbit hole it's like oh what do you think about the end shades of orange oh, and then you, you know okay why not this why not that why not that it's amazing what streaming has to offer some really obscure stuff. And I, I'm glad to see that because it's nice that some of these bands are finally getting recognized. And there's, I mean, I had to throw a mention of uh, shades of orange in there. Well, that's another Bill Wyman produced thing. Well, yeah, it's one of the most expensive 45s I ever bought. Oh, you bought, you have it. I, I have an original. Wow. Deca I do not 45. have, I don't have any original British stuff at all on 45. That's well, that's that's the only one, because <laughs> it's all you know a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah. It's like oh, Path Through the Forest by the Factory, oh, yeah. ten thousand dollars. Really? Oh my god. No. Oh, it's something like yeah. that. Obscene pricing, I'm sure. Well, that's what happens when you sell two copies. Very true. But I mean, that's what happens when the internet comes along and people start getting into this stuff and. And there obviously is a demand for 60s music. And I guess a question I have for you is, you know, younger people are finding 60s music, I guess, through streaming. But, and there seems to be a, quite a niche building of younger people that are into that music. So what is it you're seeing from your end? Uh, in what way? Well, I mean, just the number of people. You've, you've, you have a circle of friends that are into this stuff. How extensive is that circle? And, I mean, does it affect a lot of people just... Uh, a little bit are they really into it or the the, the circle i've i've met through the internet mm. it's they're they're very into it mm -hmm. i mean they're into like you know we're all kind of into slightly different areas but you know one of my one of my best friends is kind of in the same british pop psych world as me mm. and so we're just constantly sending each other like oh here's the you know cherry red box from a couple years oh, ago it's like oh here's here's you know volumes one through five of rubble and it, it's it's wonderful mm -hmm. <laughs> thank god for piracy <laughs> yeah it was hard before you had to actually pay for this stuff it was even just hard to find i mean you couldn't even oh, pay yeah. for it i mean so when i was a teenager i used to get trade magazines and send stuff away i used to buy stuff from a store in new york called midnight records and i actually bought my beetle butcher cover through the mail through a guy in seattle for 150 wow. bucks sight unseen not even a picture i bought it. just like a little thing in the back of 
uh, like? Well, the, the magazine I read, it was a newspaper. It was called Goldmine. And oh, there, there were a couple others around. Uh, but there was a lot of advertisement in there. And a lot of stores advertised their, uh, their inventory. And that was a place. Where, that's the only place I could get obscure stuff. That's what Midnight Records. There was a reissue. I got the first two Electric Prunes albums. There were imports from England, and I bought those mail order from Midnight Records. And they were like about eighteen bucks a piece, which was a lot of money spent on a record. Well, that's that's another one of the beautiful things about you know me or this whole Spotify era of this. It's like take take a band like the Idol Race, mm-hmm. for example. Like the there's their shit was out of print for like twenty years. But they're on Spotify. Yeah. And so it's I It's almost I get not to hear... fair to some of us who actually collected this stuff the old fashioned way to see people get it so easily now. It's like that's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> I actually worked for that. <laughs> well, if you knew how much I ended up paying for a copy of the first title race album, well, that, I think you know, that argument would settle. Yeah, it, there was kind of, a, in 2015, I noticed there was like a, a jump up in all the pricing of vinyl. And it was almost like collusion, like planned. In other words, you could still get a, Ze- in 2014, you could still get a Zeppelin II mint condition for six bucks or eight bucks. Well, starting started in 2015, they figured, well, these classic albums we should really be charging in the $20 range for. And that just started everything going up in price. And some of it's artificially high. Uh, I mentioned album rumors before. I sometimes go to my ha- the half-price books in my, my town here, and they had several rumors albums that were like in the $20 a piece range. I thought, that's too much. I mean, this album sold. Rumors is one of those albums that should be, you know, five bucks, if not the dollar. Well, you only sold 10 million of them, so it's not rare. And, you know, good copies are easy to find. So those sat there in their bin for a while. You know, rival record stores were selling for like, you know, 12 bucks. It seems, well, that's about right if it's a good copy. So, you know, it's, I guess, what you can get for it, but. People are buying them. I mean, you see all these huge, these incredible, expensive new releases. And people are buying them. It, it, it's always sickening, isn't it? When, like, a, a popular artist dies and, you know, their, their stuff isn't terribly expensive. Like, I'll use Bowie or Prince as an example. Like, you could probably get, you know, Ziggy or Diamond Dogs for, like, 10 bucks before. Yeah. Now you'd like be hard pressed to find them for under fifty. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, for whatever reason, you know, death does increase the value. We saw that when Elvis died. That was the first time I witnessed that. Uh, but yeah, you get in the news, you go on the charts again. And um, but you know, I think this these prices will tone down uh, at some point in the near future. Well, I thank God I bought most of McCartney's albums already because I, I don't even want to know how much a copy of Driving Rain would go for after Paul's died. Oh, that was one of those that, was it ever released on vinyl originally or just, yeah. yeah. It was released, but, you know, no one bought it. Yeah. They made like two copies or whatever. Yeah, it was all CD, CD, CD. Yeah, I'm waiting. And cassette. Yeah, well, I'm waiting uh, you know, the vinyl back. I'm waiting for the 8-track to come back. And maybe how about some reel-to-reel? <laughs> you know, to be, I, I'm being somewhat flippant, but tape is very durable. I'm, you know, I've had, when, when CDs came out, they were marketed to us. Like, you could take a hammer and bang them, and you could still play them, which is completely untrue. I mean, yeah. I, you know, you get a little scratch on a CD, and you couldn't play it in your car. But tapes, forget it. You could pay them forever. You know, tapes, you know, there's not much packaging there, but, <laughs> you know, you wonder. I mean, the, the cassettes come back in a bit of a way. I, I don't know why that is. It's, th- this is kind of how I see it from, like, I, I know a lot of young people who buy cassettes. Really? It's, it's the same reason they'd like to buy records. It's just they're cheaper. Yeah. I remember. Paul, and that, yeah. that's why CDs are making a bit of a revival. I hope they do, because I do love physical media. And uh, I think if, if CDs are taken care of well, they probably can last longer than tape anyway. And the packaging is just nicer. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder. Um, 
if it's more of a nostalgic thing. Um, I, I personally, I've got collections of movies and stuff too, and I've always had physical media. This is all bought before you could stream it or download it. And I'm not, I've not gotten rid of any of it because it's not like it's always going to be avail available to you through a streaming service. People, I don't want people to think that. Well, when it comes to, to physical media at this point, I, I own it to play it, but I also own it as a bit of a, a I, how do I put this? As a bit of a sentiment, just kind of as a tangible way of representing the music I like. Exactly. Because exactly. It, in this day and age, like all of the music's in the cloud and you don't own anything. Yeah, you can. But like any album in my collection, I could tell you like how old I was, uh, what city I bought it in, mm -hmm. what record store I bought it at. It all has memories. Well, this setup you see behind you here, I I had I built these. These are, and I built them to be like a record store. So when I have people over, we can look through them and play them. For for the audience out there uh, who can't see us <laughs> because this is. Uh, audio uh he has he has a wonderful wooden shelf kind of a flip bin of uh records he is pulling some records wow you pulled some records yeah so the idea was so i went through a phase where i wasn't listening to records really at all anymore because i got lazy when the CD, you know, I was making mixtapes in the 80s because I could put them, play them in my car. And then in the 90s, you know, you had CDs where you could program the tracks you wanted to play. And then you could burn your own CDs and then make your own playlists. I realized I wasn't being challenged. I was listening to everything I wanted to and not being challenged with any really new stuff. So what I did was I started, I went back to albums. And my rule is if I put one on, I have to listen to at least one side all the way through. And it just made me relax a little more. I took the time to, you know, sort the albums and just look at the liner notes and things. And it just was a more relaxing experience. And it just was a better listening experience in general. So I've been doing that ever since. That was about 15 years ago. So when I built, and this is kind of a temporary place I'm in, but my ideal is to have all this stuff open for people. When I have them over, you can have a cocktail, spin some records. And, and then everybody starts telling their stories. Oh, I saw these guys here, right? I remember where I was when I heard this. It's just the most fun thing. So that's that's kind of why I did it this way. Well, it, it's a it's a very attractive setup, and I'm very envious. Well, it wasn't that expensive to make, actually. But I, I, do, I know a car, carpenter, and he, he helped me with it, so that helped. But, um, yeah, it's, there's some really good systems out there to buy, too. I like it this way, so you can flip through and see, as opposed to stacking them like a bookshelf. It's really hard to get through them takes some more space well, this way, but what do you can do? I, I've kind of settled on a bit of a, it feels like a hybrid model where I have like the, you know, Ikea cube shelves, mm -hmm. but I have the dividers in them like how you would at a record oh, store. Okay. So I can kind of, you know, if I tilt my head, it can kind of feel like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, space is uh, at a premium when you collect uh, the full albums, you know. I mean, CDs are not too bad, but yeah, space... Although it sometimes it probably takes up more space than it needs to because I'm, I'm very guilty of buying albums with the with pretty much the explicit intention of them being 12 inch singles. Pretty much. Okay. It's like, oh, I want to hear Kicks by Paul Revere and the Raiders. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. That's a good song. Take the needle off. Put it back. Yeah. For that kind of stuff. I still listen to most of my music on my computer. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've got. I don't know how many thousand songs on here, but uh, that's just the easiest way. And I, I, I do both. I, I don't, I do have an eight track player. That's right back. It's my parents' original one. And I, when I have my seventies parties, I, I bring out the eight track and bring out all the vintage stuff, which is a lot of fun. How, how extensive is your eight track collection? Not very. I pro I've got a couple of nice, cause they used to have these carrying cases and these, these, uh, uh, carousels that you, for your desktop and stuff. So I've got about maybe four of those small ones filled with tapes, but it's all '70s stuff. You know, nothing really, uh, nothing collectible. Not yet, anyway, that I'm aware of. Anyway, if you had a couple Hollies cassettes on one of them, 
theoretically you could have on a carousel on a carousel yeah, you could that's right <laughs> speaking of the hollies speaking of the hollies there's a new book coming out on them so is there? there is uh there's a couple books the drummer bernie Cal- uh, bobby la just did a book recently but i read the, the the association videos i did on my channel i the source was a guy named malcolm cyrils he's a british guy mm-hmm. self-published and he's his Holly's book just came out and I'm, oh, really? i just bought it i haven't even gotten it yet so i'm going to be doing a series on the Hollies because i love them they're talk about a great pop band psych pop band it's the the hollies are a bit of a complicated bunch for me it i'm a big fan of everything up to when graham nash left yeah i think and then after that i can only kind of find it listenable yeah it's amazing how the departure of one person completely changed that band it came at the uh, at a specific time uh, where things changed anyway. But yeah, I'm, I feel the same way. I mean, I'm big into everything until Nash left and the, the stuff at, in the three or four albums after that, I'm like, yeah, there's a couple of album tracks here and there that are okay, but the singles oh, are good. I, but I, I think the best thing they did after Nash left was gasoline alley bread. But yeah, that's not bad. I like um, long, cool woman is a good song. And it is, but I've, I've heard yeah. it too much. He ain't heavy. That's we've heard that one plenty, and there aren't a lot of good tracks on those albums, in my opinion. Uh, there's some that are okay, but but when you go back to albums like for certain because or yeah, hell evolution. Oh yeah, the British one, not the American one. Right. Are you familiar with the album after Butterfly that they they never released? Uh, I'm gonna take a guess that would that one have had uh, Tomorrow When It Comes? Yes. And wings. I'm not familiar with this. Well, they had, so Nash was with them till like December 26th of 68. So he wrote out the mm-hmm. entire year and they did a couple singles that, that Listen to me was one of them. Yeah. Right? Jennifer Eccles. And um, they, they wanted to do the Dylan album, Holly's Play Dylan, which is just God awful. Um, yeah. But they were recording another album, but I guess they just shelved it because Nash had left. But that's, it's probably, there's some unreleased stuff couple unreleased songs but I, I plan on doing an album that never was video on that album um but yeah some really good stuff um well, a couple months ago i was really into the song that this wheel's on fire mm. the the julie driscoll brian auger and the trinity version yeah. and i was just looking around on youtube and it's like oh the hollies did a version of this let me listen to it and then i wouldn't listen to the hollies for like a month because i was just so upset there's another great version of that song. Uh, the Birds did it on um, their album, Dr. Birds, Mr. Hyde. But the, <laughs> there's an unreleased version that's even better that they did that, that's also available. And it's just, just great guitar work. Oh, it's the Birds. It's the Birds. And this is the Clarence White version of the Birds. That He's that real awesome bluegrass player. So when he does electric, he's just breathtaking. But yeah, you get these little gems here and there that you really got to dig for i i feel like the people listening out there are probably like when are they going to talk about the beatles again oh i forgot about the beatles yeah that's <laughs> most most people do they're there well if you like to get back on track what uh oh, well, we I, could talk think... about how george harrison ripped on the holly's version of if i needed someone we could do that he did he did and then you know Paul McCartney tried to do some damage control. Uh, then the next year, it's like Harrison had shit all over it. And then I think it was uh, when "I Can't Let Go" came out. Paul was in the 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 enemy or melody maker, oh. saying like, "Oh, Graham Nash's harmonies are excellent in this." <laughs> you know that song "I Can't Let Go" was one of the forty fives I had as a kid as well. What a great one! It's. It's one of the things I'd love about living in Canada because all those 45s and those albums were on Capitol here. Oh. So you can get like the I Can't Let Go, Stop, 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 whatever, mm-hmm. pay you back with interest sure. on that nice swirl label. Oh, yeah. We had those on Imperial here in the States. And, yeah. Uh, they were on Imperial and then when they and then they went to Epic. Oh, Epic and yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. Not a nice label. <laughs> no. 
I mean, they they say what you will about Epic. They did put out the most Dave Clark Five albums. You, that's very true. Dave Clark Five really very few bands stick to one label, one record company, and they they did. Whether or not it was a good idea that they put out so many albums. Yeah, Dave maybe. Clark Five. There was a time when all of those albums were out of print in the '60s. So by the time the '80s came, those were kind of hard to find, and there was a bit of a demand. And then they came up with a double double CD set in the '90s that was real good, and then people could really get into the you know the full catalog. And then it was out of print again for like another <laughs> ten years after that. Oh boy, I didn't realize for that. for a guy who who you know is a mogul so to speak entrepreneur i don't know whatever dave clark is looks like a klingon but he he doesn't do a good job at preserving his band's history yeah you're right about that i mean this this would be the time the last 10 years would have been an easy time to do it mm-hmm. and i don't know if there, did i hear that was it somebody didn't like him or was some issue i don't remember uh but he was always a little bit off on his own as a band even in the 60s it seemed to me he had um, the management. He had he signed. He was a, the contracts they signed were very favorable uh, royalty rates and everything. And I don't know if other bands were jealous of that or what, but they didn't seem to really hang a lot with other bands too much. But I, I could be wrong about that. No, they they kind of had their own thing. It's they had their own sound that they kind of stuck to for too long. Yeah. They didn't transition to the psychedelic era. They have a couple no. songs, with, you know, like In and Out, I think yeah. is one. But yeah, they it, yeah they really did Inside and Out. And then you, if you get to the 69, 70s stuff, it's really bad. Some of the stuff, the covers there, they were doing. There's there's a couple tracks that that are actually not too bad mm-hmm. from that period. Like I, I really like that Red Balloon. Yeah, that's good. Single. That's good. Uh, they did like put a little love in your heart, and they did Let's Get Together by the Young Boys. That's exceptionally bad. But you know they they were pretty much done after the seventy, I think. Yeah, it's they just didn't move with the times. Right. But back to those Beatles. Yes, they, I'm, this is this is the part of the show where I, it's the I really need to rename this part of the show because it feels kind of satirical at this point. Quick fire questions, mm-hmm. where the answers are almost always not quick. What's your favorite Beatles song? Well, I don't have a favorite song, and that's the honest, oh. the honest thing. I don't have a favorite song, and I, I, I've never really had a favorite song. Uh, I mean, I love so many of them. Um, sorry to disappoint you on that question, but I don't have one. Do you have a top five? Well, there's a, there's some songs I've been listening to more recently that have one of the songs I was and when I say recently, I mean like the last ten years. Um, mm-hmm. But the song something is. A song that really still really gets me deep um, I've always said that I think you can make the argument that might be the Beatles best song um, not everybody would make that argument but I think you can make a decent pitch for that because it's just the melody is so beautiful it's produced perfectly it's like two minutes of 59 seconds of like almost perfection and uh, as, I th- as I think Frank Sinatra once said it was the best song Lennon McCartney ever wrote he did say that but he did retract that. He was saying it by 78. He was saying it. It was by George Harrison by that time. So he finally got uh, it right. But yeah, that was a, um, that's a song that uh, I, I've been going back to a lot more. Now that you hear the deconstructed tracks, I don't know if you've listened to those a lot. Uh, the the rock band stuff. That, and there's other people that are using software to, to separate a lot of the instrumentation, which some of it's very good, some of it's not. But that song's interesting to listen separated. Well, that's one of the most interesting things about this this digital age of the Beatles. When that rock band game came out and all the multi-track stuff got leaked. Like, I have all of them on my computer. And if I'm bored, it's like, okay, let's go into Maxwell Silverhammer and listen track by track. And it's like, okay, this is the drums, this is the guitar, blah, 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 blah. I do have, I did download the, the rock band mixes, which I downloaded for, at the time, they put some cold endings on some of the songs, which I thought was really cool. Or some of the fade-outs might be a little longer, or they were a little different. Yeah. And um, 
so that I thought that was kind of cool because my kids had got we got them rock band and they yeah. were little when they came on and were into it. Now on the flip side, let's hope you have an answer for this though. Okay. What's your least favorite Beatles song? Least favorite Beatles song? Well, I, I guess uh, of all the original stuff, there's very few fillers for me. I mean, some songs I I don't. I mean, I guess I would prefer. Maybe I'm amazed on the Abbey Road to Maxwell Silver Hammer. Yeah. So that's if that is a hint. I guess Maxwell Silver Hammer is a little bit of a, a song that I have a problem with, only because it's a little bit overproduced, and it doesn't. It doesn't. Even Oh Darling is a little bit overproduced, and Paul went a little yeah. too far on both of those tracks, and I think that that tarnishes Abbey Road a little bit for me. A lot of people say Abbey Road is the best album. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but um, I think they maybe went a little too far on those two songs. I, I wouldn't say that. Maybe the second best Beatle album, but not the first. Yeah. Best. Speaking of best Beatle albums, yes. what's your favorite Beatle album? Uh, favorite? Well, you know, the first album I ever listened to was Introducing the Beatles on VJ. So that's essentially the first album that's basically please please me i still love listening to that album all the way through it just that takes me back to my youth and uh it just has so much energy and that's probably that and then my other one is when i got into the other beatles albums that i was talking about earlier the two that i played the most probably were magical mystery tour and sergeant pepper to me those or two halves of a double album. And 1967, for me, was a year, and the Beatles' music showed this more than anybody else's, is the color that you can add to music, the, the beautiful layers and textures in the production, and just the nuances that were being added to music at that time. And I just I think color is the right word. And that's you know one of the things that really drew me into those two albums. And now, if so... That, actually, I think that's the first time someone said introducing the Beatles for that question. Oh. There's a first for everything. <laughs> What's your least favorite Beatle album? Well, I, I guess Yellow Submarine is probably the one I listen to the least. Um, I, although I've appreciated the George Martin scores over the years much more, in terms of just listen to those. But I thought that was a big missed opportunity. I thought they completely botched that release. Uh, I thought they could have, uh, there's other songs that could have been added to it and still kept, I, what I think they should have done is the Beatles were getting lazy. And I think if you've heard George Harrison's Wonderwall album, there's some very good music on there that I think, oh, I love that, I think that is maybe the approach they could have taken as a band for side two of Yellow Submarine. I mean, yeah, shave off a month in India. Come on, get back to work, guys. Come on, you know. So that I, when I when I look at it now and look at, not that they should have worked harder because they they put out so much. Uh, that's uh, in, in the Beatles' defense, though, that album was like ninety percent the Remo Four. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It was the Remo Four, uh, <laughs> but it's it's um, it's an album that I think that they're probably a little embarrassed by, which is why that song track came out remixed what was it 99 or something yeah so yeah that's and with that being said i'm gonna pass this over to today's sponsor me ah. and then i'll edit in the little you know hi i'm ethan alexanian founder president and ceo of fans on the run i hope you've enjoyed the show so far I certainly have. Oh, what a good time it's been. The show is also streaming on all of the major podcast distribution platforms like Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. If you're listening on any of those, please follow or subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed what you've listened to so far, please leave a review. We're on Facebook at Fans on the Run Podcast, Twitter at Fans on the Run Pod, and on Instagram at Fans on the Run Podcast, where I post all the graphics for the show, including this episode's graphic. If you have any requests of people you'd like to see on the show, questions, comments about an episode, or anything else, you can reach me at Fans on the Run Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you, me. Very cool. <laughs>
now matt where where can people find uh where can people find pop goes the 60s well i'm on youtube under that name just type in pop goes the 60s matt williamson and you should be taken right to my channel and you'll find a bunch of beetle related deep dives uh, albums that never were and quite a few bands uh histories of 60s bands well and and i'll also put the the links in the descriptions to wherever wherever you're out there listening to this spotify apple wherever doesn't i don't even know where the show is anymore (laughs) it's all gone downhill since it left youtube (laughs) but um Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's It's been a blast. Well, Ethan, thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking about some of these obscure bands. I hope others uh, enjoyed it as well. <laughs> well, but the show's not for them. It's for us. Oh, well, in that case, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah. We, I, I'll take you up on that offer. Very good. Be happy. But to, to everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Bands on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillips. This has been a Showtown Production.